Hi, my name is Dan Gaynor, and welcome to another episode of The Opposite. Beer is the new wine. There are beer snobs and sommeliers, beer apps that allow people to rate, rank, and review small batch drafts. At quaint brew pubs, beer enthusiasts are talking about flavor notes and mouthfeel and the sour bite of lactobacillus yeast. Today's episode wades into the magical and complicated world of craft beer. Whether you're a fan of ales, stouts, or wheat beers like me, Crack open a cold one as we open the tap on the best ideas on the everyman's favorite drink. Craft beer is all about creativity. But today, brewers are engaged in an arms race, and ground zero is the IPA. Originally invented by the British, the IPA is packed with hops, which act as a preservative. The British invented it because they needed a beer that wouldn't spoil on the long journey from the UK to India. And today, craft brewers use the IPA as their favorite canvas. First there was the single IPA, and then the double, and then the triple. Brewers are jamming more and more hops into this increasingly bitter beer. And today, some critics are saying that brewers are pushing the limits of good taste. In this piece from Slate, Adrian So explores a controversial argument in the craft beer industry, the case against hoppy beer. As a beer writer, I often find myself preaching the word about craft beer to people who don't want to hear it. There are a lot of Bud Light fans and people who'd rather sip a Zinfandel, even in the craft beer capital of the world, Portland, Oregon, where I live. So when a home brewer friend recently decided to visit my husband and me from Tennessee, I was excited to spend time with a kindred spirit, someone with whom I could share my favorite brews without having to make a hard sell. The first brewery I took him to was Hopworks Urban Brewery, where I ordered us a pitcher of the Velvet English Session Beer. After a few sips, I noticed that he had pushed away his glass. I'm sorry guys, he said when he noticed our puzzled expressions. This is just way too hoppy for me. I was floored. Session beer is light and drinkable. It's called session beer because you're supposed to be able to drink several over the course of a drinking session without ruining your palate. If one of my favorite session beers was too hoppy and bitter for an avid beer drinker, for a home brewer who was currently brewing beer to serve at his own wedding, what would he think of the famed Pacific Northwest IPAs? Do friends let friends drink only pilsners? That's when I realized that I had a problem. In fact, everyone I know in the craft beer industry has a problem. We're so addicted to hops that we don't even notice them anymore. Hops are the flowers of the climbing plant Humulus lupulus, a member of the family Cannabaceae, which also includes, yes, cannabis, and they're a critical ingredient in beer. Beer is made by steeping grain in hot water to turn its starches into sugar, which is later converted to alcohol by yeast. While the resulting liquid called wort is boiling, brewers add hops to tone down the mixture's sweetness. Without hops, beer would taste like Coke. Recipes usually call for only a few grams of hops per gallon of beer produced, but those little flowers pack a big punch. 
In addition to their bittering properties, hops impart a strong, piney, spicy, or fruity flavor and aroma. They also contain antimicrobial agents that act as natural preservatives. Although they make up a small proportion of the ingredients used in beer, hops command the vast majority of the industry's passion. Beer geeks have an immensely emotional relationship to hops. We wax poetic about the differences among varieties, the mildness of the Saz, the bright tang of the exotic Sriracha Ace. In my wanderings through bottle shops, breweries, and beer conferences, I've seen hop cufflinks, hop bracelets, hop tattoos. I'm a party to the hop mania. I have hop scented soap in my shower and hop and peppermint foot cream by my bed. I love everything about hops, everything that is, except for the way that a lot of people conflate hops bitter aftertaste with the taste of craft beer itself. Let's be clear, not all craft beer is hoppy. There are many craft breweries that seek to create balanced, drinkable beers that aren't very bitter at all, like Patrick Ruse, the brewery in Placentia, California, and the Commons Brewery in Portland, Oregon. Among the non-hoppy yet complex and delicious American craft beers available are Widmer's Hefeweizen, New Glarus Cherry and Raspberry Beers, and Full Sail Brewing Session Lager a beer specifically developed to serve as a refreshing counterpoint to overhopped beers. America's independent breweries make beers to suit every palate, not just the ones that revel in bitterness. That said, there is some truth in the stereotype that craft beer is hoppy. The beer that more or less launched the contemporary craft beer movement, Sierra Nevada's flagship pale ale, was for its time a supremely hoppy beer. In 1980, when most of the nation's beers were produced by Anheuser-Busch, Miller, Schlitz, Pabst, and Coors, Sierra Nevada's Pale Ale was a revelation. Sierra Nevada founder Ken Grossman added way more hops than most breweries at the time would ever consider using. But he used a recently discovered American variety called the Cascade, a hop whose big, bitter bite was counterbalanced by a sweet, grapefruit scent and a spicy aftertaste. Sierra Nevada Pale Ale is a beautiful beer with an aggressive edge, and it's the beer that put me and so many others on the path to craft beer enthusiasm. Thanks in part to Grossman's pioneering influence, the Pale Ale and its hoppier sister, the India Pale Ale, grew massively in popularity. Today, they're the third best and best-selling craft beer styles in the country, respectively. This was a positive development, but some breweries went overboard. By the 1990s, craft breweries like Rogue, Lagunitas, Stone, and Dogfish Head were all engaged in a hops arms race, bouncing ideas and techniques off one another to produce increasingly aggressive hop-forward beers. There are a few obvious reasons for hop status as the darling of craft brewers. Hop's strong flavors present a stark contrast to watered-down horse piss, which is how I believe one refers to Bud Light in the common parlance. Maximizing hops is a good way for craft brewers to distinguish their creations from mass-market brands. Hops are also appealing because they give brewers an easy creative outlet. There are lots of choices to be made when it comes to hops. You can select different varieties, whether you want the big, piney flavor of the Chinook or the mild earthiness of the traditional English Fuggle. 
You can decide whether you'll add them fresh, dried, or pulverized, and compact it into tiny pellets for greater consistency. Maybe you'll give your beer a big burst of hoppy aromatic oils by adding them after fermentation in a process known as dry hopping. If you're mechanically inclined, you can even jury-rig a device like Dogfish Head's foosball player come engineering mechanism, Sir Hopsalot, which feeds a steady stream of hops into the boil for a solid 90 or 120 minutes. And unfortunately, hops are a quick way for beginning brewers to disguise flaws in their beer by using the hops' strong flavor to overcome any possible off tastes. Do you regret throwing those juniper twigs in the boil? Did you forget to sterilize a piece of equipment or now fretting about bacteria? Quick, hops to the rescue. From a consumer standpoint though, beers overloaded with hops are a pointless gimmick. That's because we can't even taste hops' nuances above a certain point. Hoppiness is measured in IBUs, International Bitterness Units, which indicate the concentration of isomerized alpha acid, the compound that makes hops taste bitter. Most beer judges agree that even with an experienced palate, most human beings can't detect any differences above 60 IBUs. Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, one of the hoppiest beers of its time, clocks in at 37 IBUs. Some of today's India Pale Ales, like Lagunitas Hop Stupid, measure around 100 IBUs. Russian River's Pliny the Younger, one of the most sought-after beers in the world, has three times as many hops as the brewery's standard IPA. The hops are added on eight separate occasions during the brewing process. Craft brewers' obsession with hops has overshadowed so many other wonderful aspects of beer. So here's my plea to my fellow craft beer enthusiasts. Give it a rest. Let's talk about the differences between wild and cultivated lab yeast and the weird and wonderful flavors that are created when brewers start scouring nearby trees or flowers or even their own beards for new strains. Let's geek out about local craft malted barley and how it compares to traditional imported European malts. And let's start preaching a new word. Craft beer isn't always bitter. Who knows? Maybe we'll finally win over some of those Bud Light fans. In 1984, a guy named Jim Cook left a lucrative career in consulting to start brewing craft beer. Armed with his great-great-grandfather's beer recipe in hand, Jim brewed the very first batch of Samuel Adams Boston Lager in his kitchen. Today, his beer company earns over $900 million a year, all while trailblazing a path for thousands of other beer startups. But while you think Jim would be kicking back with a cold one, He's actually as nervous as ever. In this piece, published in the New York Times, Jim Cook asks, is this the last call for craft beer? When craft brewers get together, we agree that this is the greatest time in history to be a beer drinker in America. In 1981, there were only 82 breweries in the United States and our beer, Fizzy and flavorless was the laughingstock of the beer world. Today, America is home to over 5,300 small, innovative craft breweries making unique, flavorful, creative brews. 
But we also agree that the horizon isn't so bright. After years of 15% growth, the craft sector is down to the single digits. Part of that is to be expected in a maturing part of any market, but it's also a result of a pushback by a handful of gargantuan global brewers aided by slack government antitrust oversight. I worry that yet another major shift in the beer landscape is upon us, and this time, American consumers will be the losers. We have seen a dramatic consolidation in our industry in recent years. It started in 2008, when the Department of Justice approved the creation of a duopoly in the beer industry by greenlighting a joint venture between Molson Coors and SAB Miller, creating Miller Coors, and five months later, the merger of Anheuser-Busch and InBev. Overnight, about 90% of domestic beer production was in the hands of two brewing giants. The consolidation continued in 2016, when regulators approved the merger of SAB Miller and AB InBev. SAB Miller sold back its stake in Miller Coors, creating a new duopoly between Molson Coors and AB InBev. The immediate result was a 6% increase in beer prices and the end of a decades-long decline in real beer prices. Drinkers began paying almost $2 billion a year more for their beer. At least 5,000 Americans lost their jobs, and cost-cutting followed, saving the new owners an estimated $2 billion. That money goes to those two conglomerates that have been able to reduce their tax bills and move much of their profits offshore. This brewer's duopoly has led to a second consolidation, wholesalers, the crucial intermediaries who distribute our beer to retailers. In 1980, there were 4,600 wholesalers in the country, and most markets had four or five competing wholesalers. Today, fewer than 3,000 remain, and in most local markets, over 90% of the beer is controlled by distributors for these same two companies, one of which is dependent on AB InBev for most of its volume and the other on Miller Coors. These distributors are free to favor their primary suppliers over independent craft brewers when it comes to promotion, visibility, shelf space, and marketing support. Laws passed in the 1970s to protect small mom-and-pop wholesalers from the big brewers are now obsolete and have the unintended consequence of creating an unfavorable balance of power, unfavorable to craft brewers and people who enjoy their beers. The Department of Justice is allowing the damage to continue by greenlighting these two big brewers to extend their duopoly into craft beer by acquiring craft brewers. For example, in December, the department approved AB InBev's acquisition of Carbach, one of the largest craft brewers in Texas, a state where AB InBev already controls 52% of the beer market. Drinkers buying cute-sounding brands like Goose Island or Terrapin or Ten Barrel are often unaware that these brands, some of them once independent, are now just subsidiaries of AB InBev or Molson Coors, which are not transparent about disclosing their true ownership anywhere on the bottle. This unwillingness to use effective antitrust enforcement to protect American economic interests is in stark contrast to how the rest of the world operates. Before approving AB InBev's latest merger, antitrust authorities in China 
required it to sell its $1.6 billion stake in China's largest brewer back to the Chinese government at a bargain basement price. South Africa required guarantees of lifetime employment for its citizens, and the Monopolies Commission in the European Union required divestitures by SAB Miller and AB InBev to keep their new combined market share to 9%. In the United States, the AB InBev-SAB Miller merger was approved with largely meaningless conduct restrictions, and the two big brewers were given a free pass to continue buying craft brewers and extending the duopoly into craft beer. When it comes to protecting American companies and workers, at least in beer, our government does make bad deals. Of course, the obvious rejoinder is, who cares? Goose Island still makes beer that consumers are buying, even if it is owned by AB InBev. But that misses the larger point. The growth and the excitement in the beer business is in craft, and its potential is threatened by a beer landscape that is heavily tilted towards gigantic conglomerates and against the independent, innovative entrance. It matters because independent American breweries create beers for their local regions. They invest in their communities, they employ local workers, and they pay taxes, local, state, and federal. American craft brewing is American manufacturing that doesn't outsource these well-paying American jobs. Get some craft brewers really talking, and they'll tell you we're headed for a time when independent breweries can't afford to compete, can't afford the best ingredients, can't get wholesalers to support them, and can't get shelf space and draft lines. The result? Beer lovers won't have the broad range of choices they have today. Get some craft brewers together, and they'll tell you that if we continue down this path, we may be witnessing the beginning of the end of the American craft beer revolution. So there's a group called the Brewers Association. It's a trade group representing small independent breweries, and since any brewery, including big guns like Anheuser-Busch, can use words like craft on their packaging and marketing, the Brewers Association is working to help the little guys stand out in a market increasingly controlled by the bigger beer corporations. This June, the Brewers Association ticked off the industry's big conglomerates. It unveiled a certified independent craft seal, which is a sign to consumers that the beer they're buying comes from a small traditional production. Naturally, the big guns were ticked off by this seal. They view it as a direct shot across the bow at the craft brewers who have been snatched up by big beer conglomerates. Now, Anheuser-Busch has a craft beer umbrella called the High End. It owns brands like Stella Artois, Shock Top, and Ten Barrel. The same brewery you just heard Sam Adams founder Jim Cook lambast in the previous segment. So this next piece is written by the head of the high end, Felipe Spiegel. It butts heads with the craft beer industry in a pretty stark way. So do you stand with the craft beer underdogs? Or are the big brewers unfairly demonized? Here in the Chicago Tribune is the piece from the guy at Anheuser-Busch who's snatching up those craft breweries. It's entitled... Big beer working with craft brewers. What's the argument? (laughs) 
Chicago has had a front row seat to the explosion of craft breweries across America, thanks to the vision of John Hall when he created Goose Island Beer Company. What began in 1988 later spawned alumni who went on to start other Chicago breweries, including Revolution Brewing and one of the newest, Weiner Beer Company. Six years ago, when Hall and his company wanted to grow, he partnered with Anheuser-Busch. Yet increasingly, we hear ludicrous claims that big beer companies are on a mission to destroy the craft beer industry, that we are shutting down growth, eliminating choice. These claims are totally divorced from reality. There are now more than 5,000 breweries in the United States. Anheuser-Busch partners with 10 of them. More than 700 new breweries have opened just this past year. We rightly celebrate the technology companies that have led the digital revolution. Facebook, Google, Apple, and others have helped turn garage innovators into household names. Why should the beer business be any different? When we partner with a craft brewery such as Goose Island, it's because a choice is made on how to grow the business. Goose Island chose to partner with a company of fellow brewers. Others have chosen private equity financiers. This is happening across the industry. Our collective goal is to grow the beer industry. Our challenge is to create new beer experiences, such as the burgeoning movement of pairing craft beer and fine dining occasions, as well as expand the economic impact craft brewers have on local economies. Just look at what happened when Goose Island opened its first brew pub on Clybourne Avenue. It helped transform the neighborhood into a thriving destination. Today, Goose Island continues to boost Chicago's economy, adding locations, employing more than 200 people, and creating an economic impact of nearly $14 million each year. As more brewers like Goose Island want to move to the next level, they need capital and expertise. Who better to help than another brewer? By helping grow the industry, we are adding to economic growth in towns and cities across America. Last year, our company was America's 14th largest taxpayer. The verdict on craft beer will be made by consumers. No amount of distribution or promotion will keep a substandard beer on the shelf. The independent retailers and wholesalers whom we serve and who get our beers to consumers know that fact. The sound you just heard was a real can of beer that I've been sipping on throughout this entire episode. It's a Raspberry Sour Crush made by Ten Barrel Brewing Company, an independent brewer based out in the middle of the desert of Oregon in a town called Bend. Ten Barrel is an interesting story in the sense that it's at the epicenter of what this episode was debating. It was lambasted by Sam Adams founder Jim Cook as an example of a small brewer that got swept up by a big conglomerate duopoly. On the other hand, the head of Anheuser-Busch's craft beer label held them up as an example of a really innovative small brewer that used big beer capital to grow and reach a new marketplace. 
10 Barrel is an interesting story for me personally because it's one of my favorite beers, and yet I would only know about them because they partnered with that big beer conglomerate. They built a sparkling new facility downtown just a few miles from my apartment and many hours away from their original founding headquarters in the desert. So the only reason I know about them is because they got bought out by the man. And yet there is a tinge of bitterness every time I take a sip of this delicious beverage because I know that their founding ethos is somewhat diminished. They are no longer independently owned and operated, even if they are pumping out some of the most innovative beverages that I've ever had. So while craft beer is about fun and exploration, this episode was getting at something bigger, that craft beer is actually about your values. Do you value more choice and wacky flavor experiences? Or do you value a beer that you know is independently owned and operated? Do your hipster instincts stop at your taste buds or your wallet? Think about that next time you pick up a six-pack of something interesting. That wraps up the craft beer episode of The Opposite. Thank you for listening all the way through. Please be sure to subscribe on our iTunes page. On behalf of our entire team here at The Opposite, as well as co-founder and executive producer Justin Sego, I want to thank you for listening to The Opposite because it's not enough to know what's going on in the news. You've got to have a take on it. <laughs>